Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property presented by the Indiana University Maurer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Amy and I'm a 2L at Maurer. I'm interested in entertainment law. My name is Vanessa. I'm also a 2L. I'm interested in patent law. My name is Sam. I'm a 2L as well and I'm interested in art law. On today's episode, we will be discussing the ways in which BIPOC creators are harmed or disadvantaged by IP laws or the lack thereof, as well as how we can remedy this. This podcast episode was inspired by topics presented at the Fordham Intellectual Property, Media, and Entertainment Law Journal's 29th Annual Symposium, IP Interrupted, Diverse Voices in Intellectual Property. Without further ado, let's start with cultural appropriation in the fashion industry. Professor Susan Scafidi defines cultural appropriation as taking intellectual property, traditional knowledge, cultural expressions, or artifacts from another's culture without permission. I wanted to ask my co-hosts, what is your perspective on cultural appropriation in the U.S., especially as it relates to clothing? Why do you think cultural appropriation is important to remedy? So I think this is a really broad topic, and I would have to say that education is generally lacking. Unfortunately, it can also sometimes get political. That's why it, it, it's such a complicated topic. And it's also a little hard to just try to refine it inside of the U.S., right? Because the fashion industry is growing internationally day by day. There can be also diff- very different ways of cultural appropriation, right? Like there could be examples of inappropriate executions of certain cultural aspects, and it could involve stereotypical and plainly wrong executions. And also when it comes to some instances where it actually is aesthetically presented, sometimes the inspiration were not really properly attributed. And especially when it comes to actual commercial profits, that way the specific group's cultural significance could be really diminished. Yeah, you know, I think culture is a really sensitive topic just because it's so closely tied to one's sense of identity that it's really easy to like, we're pretty generally like define what cultural appropriation is, but I think it's tough to like really pull out specific instances and try to create rules or policies to kind of define individual cases. And, you know, given how international the fashion industry is and how closely technology has brought the international community together, it's certainly something that's become almost commonplace. And Vanessa's right, education and awareness are definitely important in this field and something that's lacking and definitely essential in remedying cultural appropriation. And more importantly, there's the matter of preserving and protecting cultural tradition and preventing inappropriate use. And, you know, there's also even the question of whether businesses should be allowed to profit from cultural appropriation, considering the socioeconomic disparities that are typically felt by indigenous populations. Exactly. Uh, While I was researching for this podcast, I thought it was really interesting that here in the U.S., the only legal protection given to cultural works is through the Indian Arts and Crafts Act of 1990, which only protects Native American culture. In 2021, Mexico enacted a new amendment to its copyright law requiring one to obtain authorization from a community representative before using cultural expression or art from that community. This way, the Mexican Ministry of Culture can issue cease and desist letters to brands that misappropriate cultural heritage. Moreover, at the beginning of this year, Mexico's Senate was reviewing a bill calling for profit sharing when indigenous cultural heritage is appropriated, with a penalty of two to ten years in prison for misappropriating. What do you guys think about these stricter laws and punishment for cultural appropriation? Should the U.S. implement a centralized department for culture to make laws like this? 
So my first impression after you have introduced all of that, Amy, is how shockingly that these laws are so recent and also so limited. As we have mentioned that this in general is an underprotected area. So in my opinion, more protection is in the right direction of awareness. And I do like the profit sharing aspect of it. However, I would be curious to see how effective these very strict laws can apply in reality. Also, I worry whether these kind of harsh punishment has the best effect of education and prevention purposes. Yeah, you know, I think that um, there could definitely be a lot of challenges with presenting such a centralized department in the U.S. Um, I'm personally not that familiar with culture in Mexico, but um, I was doing some reading and the Minority Rights Group International seems to indicate that indigenous culture is considered to be at the heart of Mexican society. And, you know, that's quite different in the U.S. where indigenous culture and crafts are very, very distinct from what is generally known and considered as American culture today. And, you know, this difference seems like it would, you know, pose a lot of challenges of bridging gaps within such a centralized department, you know, like establishing comprehensive representation within the department would be an enormous task. You know, there are 574 tribes currently recognized by the government. And as I was saying earlier, since culture is so sensitive and personal, especially when you're facing the uphill battle of being this separate entity, representation seems essential. And going from that, there's a lot of potential for non-Indigenous influence within a centralized department regarding appointments, policies, procedures, and remedies. And I think we shouldn't overlook issues of autonomy and self-determination for Indigenous populations. Um, what, do you, what would you guys think about you know, a specific department, which is more or less what we kind of have in place right now as, a, as opposed to the broader centralized? So I personally feel like pretty much everything, right? There's pros and cons. And I feel like a specific department cut down a lot of the formality and might be slightly easier to execute in reality, but also it could be fairly limited opposed to a more broader centralized model, especially in the legal community, how it's established in this country. Yeah, I agree. I think just in the United States too, with such broad diversity in culture and traditions, I don't really know what a specific department would look like because I feel like different communities would have different goals. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, I also, as Vanessa was saying earlier, kind of have some apprehensions about having such strict policies in place, you know, partially because it seems like it could be a little tough to enforce, but also it would have some unintended adverse consequences. Like one of the criticisms of the current legislation in the U.S. is that it has a very harsh impact on Native American creators whose tribal affiliation is not officially recognized. Mm -hmm. So in other words, those with indigenous heritage who are not enrolled in a tribe run the risk of these penalties if they make and sell their art while claiming this heritage. And I think the penalties right now in the U.S. are pretty harsh, and it looks like they're much harsher for an individual than for the business. So Professor Scafidi proposes the three S's rule to allow people like us to try to draw the line between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. So the first S is source. Um, ask yourself, who is the source of the borrowed product? Be sensitive to items and customs that come from historically disadvantaged communities. The second S is significance. The more significant the product is to its source, the more careful one should be when borrowing. The last S is similarity. The more similar your creation is to the borrowed product, the more likely it is that problems arise. Do you guys think this rule is useful or do you think anything is missing? 
I think it's a really great start to try to solve this problem, right? But my first impression upon hearing that is that it, it could be really challenging to apply because there seems to be a lot of subjective standards, like what is considered how significant the product is and how similar, how do I quantify or decide what is considered similar enough and what is not, which is kind of an overall problem when it comes to a lot of the litigations and legal issues when it comes to IP. Yeah, you know, when you were just saying this, to me, it seems like these are pretty broad, common sense, pretty common mm-hmm. courtesy points. And that being said, Vanessa's definitely right. Culture is so subjective that it would really be impossible to set anything like much more specific than this. But I do think that she could consider intention within this framework and that's something that seems to be missing for me and that kind of goes to the issue of education and awareness that's deeply missing within the problem of cultural appropriation because there could be instances of people you know with just very misguided attempts at appreciation that someone else could call appropriation absolutely so next i wanted to talk about how vipoc are disadvantaged in the music industry And I wanted to start off by asking you two, do you use TikTok and have you ever tried a (laughs) dance challenge from the platform? I personally do not have a TikTok, but I have seen a lot of those videos on other social media platforms that people have either shared or... So I know how it works, but I haven't tried any dance challenges. Yeah, you know, I also do not have a TikTok and I'm like generally aware, but I think... I can say maybe one. Okay. 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 So Professor Kevin J. Green is a professor of contract music law and entertainment law at Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles. And he noted the inequity in protecting ballet dance choreography, but not TikTok dance challenges. I thought this was interesting as I was researching for this podcast because I remember this topic came up a while ago as an issue of just not getting credit where credit's due. At the time, I didn't even think about the potential monetary implications. And though it might seem like a silly topic, many of the TikTok dance challenges that went viral were created by Black teenagers. However, it is usually white women who get credited for the moves and is able to benefit most from the choreography going viral. What's more, because the dance moves aren't protected, corporations are able to use and profit off of the choreographic expression. The three of us are taking copyright law now, and this seems to me to really go against the idea that copyright law aims to promote and protect original works of creativity. What do you guys think? So I feel like part of the challenge is that how people consume music and content as how we refer to things we consume from the internet is wildly different from, say, even 15 years ago, not to mention when the latest Copyright Act was enacted in the 70s. These dance challenges have been described as primarily a currency on the app to your monetary comment. So it really complicates things. It goes to so many aspects. And indeed, many of the app's most followed creators They actually build their community and attract their followings through those dance moves and even lip sync content, which is also something that I have noticed. I would say it's really complicated. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that it's a pretty complicated issue. You know, as you were hearing it, all I think about was just how much we talk about like originality Mm -hmm. in copyright. And this definitely seems like it would be like a pretty tough question of originality. And I think there probably will be a lot of consideration regarding like personal interpretation and all these different variations. I remember a couple of years ago, Fortnite got sued over some of their like emotes. I think that's what they're called. (laughs) And, uh, you know, those copy moves weren't found to be original and that didn't work out. 
But with TikTok and the music industry and creative stuff in general, technology just plays a bigger and bigger role and there's consistently new ground to cover and more distinctions to be made. So I think there's a lot of definitely interesting research and news to come from this topic. Yeah, ultimately, there's no perfect path to ensuring equality in every space, IP being one of them. However, a few suggestions we have that might have remedial and beneficial effects include allowing diverse voices to be heard, particularly when they're at the community being affected and whose culture is being barred, um, as well as opening up more seats to BIPOC at the leadership table, acknowledging that there are generational differences in perspectives when it comes to what's socially acceptable and what's not, be open-minded and considerate, even if it's uncomfortable, be open to having these kinds of conversations. And when it comes to patent law, improving STEM resources for women is crucial. Vanessa, I know you're interested in patent law, so maybe you could build on this a little. Oh, absolutely. This is such a big topic. There are several aspects to improving the resources to balance inequality and imbalance in this field, right? So for women in STEM and for anyone that's not really familiar it's, it's science, technology, engineering, and math. For women in this field in general, closing the gap is happening. We can see that it's happening. I feel like I'm experiencing it myself, but it's very slowly. According to discoverdatascience.org, women only make up 26% of data professionals, and I was a data analyst myself before coming to law school. I remember in my team, out of six members, I was the only woman at the time. So having recognized that there's still a long way to go, I feel like some remedies we can think of to a lot of the problems that we were just talking about. A simple remedy is sometimes just to recognize that these biases do exist and acknowledge them. And they're more broadly than you may have imagined. Trying to work on them and open more doors for females could greatly, I feel like, dissolve a lot of those tensions. More specifically related to patent law, for women inventors, the U.S. Patent Office had released a study on participation of women in the U.S. innovation economy. More women are definitely entering and staying active in this system. However, the number is pretty low, still pretty shocking when I did the research. According to USPTO, the number of patents with at least one woman inventor increased from 20.7% in 2016 to only 21.9% by the end of 2019. It's increasing, it's still very slow, and it's still such a small amount. This was also alluded to in one of our previous episodes of our podcast. So empirical analysis of more than 3.9 millions of U.S. applications finds minority and women applicants are significantly less likely to secure a patent. Not to mention that there's only a very limited amount of patent attorneys because it's like we have established the stamp field of female in it is already pretty low. And there's only a very small amount of number of them enter the legal field after they have secured a degree in that field. The remedy I can think of right now in the long term, like Amy has alluded to, leadership positions in those fields can give us some role models. And in the short term, you know, just having access to information and resources. I wasn't introduced to the patent law when I was in school. Uh, trying to pursue my science degree, I happen to know that through some coincidence. And I feel like if those were introduced more broadly and people understand that they have more choices and where they could end up being after getting that degree could really help attract people into this field. And also there are actually more financial resources than people might realize. So I feel like that's also something it's basically just getting the information out. Yeah, I think you guys made some really strong points. And, you know, between the two of you, I think you've kind of touched on everything I was going to say. Yeah, I feel like I always say that I didn't really know what stuff like comp sci or like that STEM was, was this whole other thing when I was in school. 
So I feel like definitely increasing awareness to young people who are in school is really important. I'm also shocked just because I feel like I've seen STEM grow in popularity so much, especially these past few years. And so to see that the number of women who are in the industry is rising, but very, very slowly is definitely disappointing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's all the time we have today. And with that, let's close out this episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R-M-A-U-R-E-R-I-P-T-H or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next week.